Word. We've been in this series that we've entitled Heroes from Hebrews, and we've picked for the summer this uh, chapter, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, and, and made a series out of it, focusing in on what many Bible scholars and Bible teachers call the Hall of Faith, this chronicling of the Old Testament uh, men and women who did great things for God. While they were not perfect people, and while they did not follow God every step of the way, they are commended four steps of faith that they lived. And it should serve as an example to you and I that when we are obedient, when we choose to follow God in faith and not fear, God will use that to not only transform our lives, but the lives of so many people. And and, uh, this week, we're going to look at two sets of people, the children of Israel who entered into the promised land and the woman, the prostitute from Jericho, named Rahab. And I want you to know that uh, faith creates opportunities. Our faith in God creates opportunities uh, for transformation to take place. Number one, the children of Israel are going to see victory when all they've experienced up to this point has been a lot of defeat. And this woman who's a pagan, who's a woman of ill repute, this woman who really has seemingly no chance at salvation, because of her faith and trust in God, gives her a new lease on life and an opportunity to do things that she would have never imagined, which we'll get to at the end of our uh, lesson. But I want to go ahead and read from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verses 30, and we'll read through just 30 and 31. And then we're going to be bouncing around because I've got to get through really about seven uh, or eight chapters of Scripture that chronicle a lot of stuff. So we're going to be bouncing all over the place. But let's hear what the writer of Hebrews has to tell us, and then we'll ask for God's blessing, and we'll jump right into this thing. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 30. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We'll learn more about what's going on there, but let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, thank you for all that you've done already as we learn through the week in pictures. Uh, This place has been a happening place, not only here in the Fox Valley area, but all over the world. And so, Lord, as we have come around the table and, and remembered your death, burial, and resurrection, the object of our faith, that which we put our hope in, Now, Lord, as we turn to your scripture, I pray that you would teach us practical lessons as to how we can walk by faith and not by sight, that we might walk um, with a desire to obey you and not as the ways of the world in disobedience, but each and every step of the way, following you in your way, knowing and trusting that you have a good plan for our lives. Thank you for this example, both of the life of the children of Israel and also the life of Rahab, and we ask that they would serve as models of how we exhibit faith each and every day. Father, I pray for the preaching of the word, I pray for the hearing of it, and most importantly, Lord, I pray for the application that will come, and that we might apply it rightly to our lives, for your glory and for our good. We love you and give you praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When I was a little kid, about eight years of age, I had come to the conclusion one fall afternoon, it was a Sunday afternoon, I remember, that I was cursed. I had no chance of ever being happy again. It had to do with what I was watching on TV that Sunday afternoon. It was 1984. And in 1984, I had, uh, earlier that year, fallen in love with the team 
called the Chicago Cubs. It was the first year that I can ever remember following a team, following the stats, loving the personalities on the team. I had fallen in love with some of the names like Ryan Sandberg and, and uh, Bob Denier and Keith Moreland and Larry Boa and Ron Say, my favorites. But all that came to a crashing halt when Goose Gossage, who is of the devil, I believe, closed out the game that would end their year. I was in tears. I was absolutely and totally brokenhearted. I felt like there was a cloud hanging over me. I had invested all this time, all this energy. I thought they were a team of destiny only to have my dreams come crashing down. Well, you would have thought I would have given up then, right? Eight years old. But I kept loving that team, and they kept breaking my heart. In 1989, they would do it again when Will Clark and the San Francisco Giants uh, would decimate the Cubs in any chance of winning. I was ready to give up then, but again, too dumb and too unwise to stop, I kept becoming a glutton for punishment. And I kept understanding and hearing that there was this curse. And I didn't believe it, but there was seemingly a curse in 2003 when the Cubs are five outs, five outs, five outs from the World Series. I'm sitting in my living room with my bride. She's very quiet because she knows what's good for her during that time. And I watched the team implode. The circumstances around it were heartbreaking. And I began to say, and I remember saying, no more, I'm done. This team is cursed, and it's a waste of time to follow them. And you know, there was a curse. Like the Boston Red Sox, the curse of the Bambino, the Cubs had a curse. It was a billy goat curse. Our curses aren't even good. They're not even fun. They don't make any sense. But some tavern owner wanted to bring a goat to Wrigley Field, and he got turned away. And as he turned away, he pronounced a curse upon the Cubs and a curse upon Wrigley Field that there would never be a championship. And that curse had remained in place, supposedly, for over 70 years And I was beginning to believe it. Every time the Cubs would begin to look good, we knew it would only be a matter of time before it came to a screeching halt. And then the Boston Red Sox break their curse, right? And we're all by ourselves dealing with this. Well, on October 31st, Halloween 2009, something transpired that would change the course of the Cubs' direction. The Cubs got a new owner. No longer would they be owned by an organization or a corporation. They'd be owned by what he said was one of the biggest fans of Chicago baseball. His name was Tom Ricketts. You can see his picture on the screen. And Tom Ricketts' family is a multi-multi-billionaire family. And uh, he's always, like me, grown up loving the Cubs. And, and he took some petty cash that he had, about $890 million. I know some of you were in the running for that. And... Uh, just a little short on some change. But for $890 million, he bought the team he loved. And and I want you to know um, that your pastor hangs around with important people. So I have a picture with Tom. We're close friends, and he's there with my boys. We were just talking about, uh, he asked me about trades and stuff like that, and I help him with that. Um, But But Tom was asked during a press conference when he was introduced as the team president, He was asked, what do you think about this curse? Why would you spend $890 million on a team that is cursed? And he says, I don't believe in curses. He says, the Cubs aren't under a curse. 
what the Cubs have been doing is all the wrong stuff in the past. And we've got to start going a different direction. We have to start living differently in the big things that we do and in the small things that we do. And he says, you are going to watch a transformation over the next couple of years that you've never seen before. Now, I will tell you, I know I'm talking about baseball, but I want you to know he was absolutely right. We have seen a transformation of an organization. We've seen a transformation from the lovable losers to a team that has made the NLCS in the last three years, something that is rarely done. And he would say it had nothing to do with a curse. What it had to do with is living life differently. And we have seen, of course, and we know that the Cubs would go from the lovable losers to World Series champions. And I'm very, very excited and happy that I didn't give up too quickly. Now, some of you Sox fans and, and, and Cardinal fans are wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Hebrews 11? There's a point I have. I always have a point, right? And here's the point. The children of Israel, as the book of Joshua opens, where the writer of Hebrews has us today is at the beginning of Joshua 1. And it's an opportunity in a day for a new group of Israelites to make a decision. I am here to tell you that I believe that that generation that was entering into the promised land had to feel a bit of a curse under them. For the last 40 years, they have watched their parents and the elders of their um, nation wander around the wilderness and experience great judgment from God. Now, God had good reason to judge them. They had been disobedient. They had been obstinate. They had been rebellious. It seems at every turn when God and his prescribed leader Moses would have them do something, they would go a different direction. And as a result of that, they experienced calamity upon calamity every step of the way. And they had to feel a bit cursed that they were a nation that too would wander But as we see the beginning of Joshua 1 open up, these children are going to be commended for their faith because they're going to do something different than the previous generation had. And in some ways, they were going to break the curse, not with incantations, not with a waving of a magic wand, but through obedience. Now, right away, the question is, how does that apply to our lives? Some of us this morning want victory We want opportunity. We want to see brighter days for our lives as Christians. But we live under this, if you will, storm cloud of what we believe to be a curse. Maybe it's because of disobedience in your parents' life or dysfunction from a family you grew up in that always had you losing and and never winning. Maybe it's because of past failures of your own where you find yourself living in defeat instead of victory. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that the reason why I believe the writer of Hebrews puts this passage in here, this specific moment, is to tell you that the past doesn't need to define you. And you don't need to relegate yourself to the failures of your past, but that we are called, if we want victory in our life, to move from the troubled past that we've lived into a present reality where obedience and faithfulness rules the day. I want to use this as my thesis statement, so write this down at the top of your online. Breaking the curse of faithlessness in the past. And we've all been there. We've all at some point struggled with with the consequences of sin and the sorrow of sin. And so how do we get beyond it? How do we ever allow something new to define us? Well, the new generation that would enter the promised land would do so by beginning with faithfulness in the present. 
And so you want a way out, you want a way to victory, God says, be faithful with me today. Don't worry so much about what you've done in the past. It's in the rearview mirror. You can't do much to change it. But today is a new day, and today is a new opportunity, and you have a choice today. Are you going to continue down the road of faithlessness, or today are you going to choose to follow Christ and his commands? Now, Joshua, in this book, will say famously to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And then he gives a couple different ways that you can serve the two different kinds of masters, whether God or the gods of all of the pagan nations. And there's a choice. And you and I have a choice each and every day. We can choose to live in our sin and the failures of the past, Or we can make today a moment of demarcation where we set a line and say, I am going to follow you, God. I'm going to pursue you, God. And I'm not going to live in the past, but I'm going to live in the light of the reality of your word and your truth today. Well, to be able to do that, a couple things need to take place. In order to live in faithfulness in the present, we need to do a couple things. Number one, we need to commit to obedience. As Joshua tells the children of Israel to choose today who they're going to serve, we too have to choose today whom we're going to serve. Each and every day we get up and there's a litany of decisions, there's a litany of ways and directions we can go, and we have to make a decision today. Whatever comes my way, God, I'm going to choose to obey you instead of choosing my flesh, instead of choosing my desires, instead of choosing the ways of this world, instead of choosing the way my friends go. I'm going to choose you, God, and so when those decisions come, and at times they may be difficult, we have already set the trajectory of our lives to go the way of God, not the way of the world. Now, God sets up Joshua incredibly well for this. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Joshua chapter 1, and we'll be in Joshua for the rest of our time. If you don't have a Bible with you, Joshua can be found on page 178 in the Pew Bible. And so Joshua is a line of change. At the beginning of Joshua, a new day has dawned, a new opportunity. The children of Israel are now uh, no longer the wilderness generation. All of them are gone. Now, remember that uh, the Bible made it clear that the rebellious generation would not see the promised land, and they hadn't. Now, some of these people that you are going to see walk around the city of Jericho here in a moment are people in their younger years may have walked out of Egypt as slaves into the Exodus. And so this generation had seen their parents' generation wander from God, rebel against God, uh, argue against God, grumble against God. And God says, this new generation, you can't do the same thing. And so I'm going to give you some words, and he gives it to the new leader, Joshua. And this is what he says in Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 5. He says the following. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you, Joshua, all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous for your cause, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now here's how. Be very careful to do according uh, to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." 
Now, now here's the thing. That was true of the previous generation. Had they obeyed, had they followed, they would be in the promised land right now. But they had, choos- they had chosen not to do that. Some of you are not in a place of success. Some of you are not in a place of victory. Some of you are not in a place of vitality. Not because you're under a curse by God, but instead of following God and meditating on His law day and night and doing very carefully what the Word of the Lord says, we as people many times wander away from that. And we wave our hand at God and our finger at God and say, you're the reason why this has all happened. You're the problem, not me. God makes it very, very clear to this new generation. You want success, you want vitality, you want uh, my presence with you, then obey. And obey very carefully the things that I say. Now, what that means is we have to commit to obedience. We have to make a decision to do so. Now, Why would we do that? Number one, we would do so because we will learn from the mistakes of others. We will learn from the past failures or mistakes of others. This generation is ready to obey. This generation is ready to do whatever God says. And one of the reasons why is they have watched their parents do the exact opposite and have all kinds of calamity, all kinds of judgment befall them. And so they have put into their thinking caps, listen, disobedience, rebellion, obstinance, grumbling doesn't get me anywhere with God or get me anywhere in this life. And so I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to choose to obey. I'm going to choose to be faithful. And and by doing so, I'm trusting that God says that I will be successful. I will find vitality. I will find the life that God desires for me. Now, Here's how we do this. We can learn and we can grow in wisdom in two ways. The harder, more painful way is to learn those lessons through your own experiences. And so you go through life, and and like me, early on in my life, I chose to do things my way. I chose to um, do things that were against my parents' good wishes. I chose to do things against uh, the law's good wishes. I chose to do things against God's good wishes. And I learned very, very quickly that life wasn't very fun, that life wasn't what I hoped it would be. I found myself a whole lot of trouble, and I learned the hard way of what wise and godly and obedient living really look like because I learned the way not to live. Now, the far easier way, the cheaper way, the less painful way for you to learn this truth is not to learn it through your own experiences, but to do so from afar watching the experiences of others. And some of us don't do a really good job at this. We, like me as a young man, had to learn it the hard way. But I'm here to tell you as your pastor, there's a whole lot of examples, both good and bad, that we can watch the consequences of the good and the bad in their life, and we can see from afar, without the pain and suffering, where a life of sin leads and a life of obedience leads. And what we need to do is we need to be observing people and saying, as I look at Hollywood, I see a lot of pain and sorrow, but they live it up, they're their own gods. They get to do whatever they want, when they want, but they surely don't seem altogether all that happy. Their lives seem to be filled with all kinds of issues, so maybe I shouldn't long for that. I should long to follow God. 
Now, the generation before them, we are told in the New Testament a couple different times that the generation of wandering was given for us as an example of how not to live. That as God's people, we should not grumble. As God's people, we should not complain. As God's people, we should not be rebellious. As God's people, we should not be running to idols of other uh, nations. And they serve as an example so that we don't have to go through all of their stuff to learn the same lesson. And so this generation says, hey, it's a new day. Let's not do what the previous generation did. So let's obey. God is with us. God wants our good, and so we're going to obey. We're going to meditate on his law, and we're going to do as he says. They learn from the failures of the past from others. Number two, they live out commands. They live out commands. So they say, we're no longer going to live in the past, and that is symbolized in Joshua chapter 4. In Joshua chapter 4, they cross the Jordan River, and Joshua says to the people, we're never going back there again. We're in a new day, we're in a new opportunity, and they set up 12 stones of remembrance to remind them that we don't want to go back there. They are given two leaders, Joshua and Caleb, two of the only men who were a part of the previous generation, who were faithful and true during that generation, who were given leadership. Now, why would God give two leaders from a previous generation? Because those two leaders would be a constant reminder of let's not go back there. We remember what happened back there. We remember that God used the ground to swallow up a whole group of people in Korah's rebellion. We know that God brought all kinds of havoc when we obeyed other gods instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he sets this mark, we're not going back there, and he says, all right. Now that it's a new day, now I need you to obey in a way that you never saw coming. Chapter 5 of Joshua, look at what it says. At the top of my uh, heading, it says, the new generation circumcised. So I want you to know that the practice of circumcision had taken a break during the wilderness experience. I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, but we learn from this passage that that is, in fact, what's going on. Of course, the act of circumcision was the act of a boy baby uh, having a part of his flesh removed as a sign of a purity, as a sign of allegiance to God. And that hadn't happened for a while. And Joshua comes before the people, and he says, all right, and there's over three million people at this time in the nation of Israel, and he's speaking pretty important stuff to half of them, right? To the men of the, of the nation. And he says this, all right, I've got an announcement. And he's going through kind of like how we have our announcements, all right? And we're going to have a potluck at 3 o'clock. And hey, by the way, the uh, bocce ball tournament uh, is going to start uh, on this day. And so uh, if you're a part of the tribe of, uh, of uh, Dan, you want to be a part of that. And by the way, quick public service announcement, all the men of our nation are going to be circumcised at this time. If you aren't freaking out right now, then you don't know what circumcision is, and someone will tell you later, okay? That is a huge deal. That's every man. This is going to be costly. Your obedience is going to hurt. Yeah, but I don't feel like it. Or I don't want to. Or I shouldn't have to, should have been the responses. But nowhere in the text... Does it ever say that any of the probably 1.5 million men 
clamor about it. That's a miracle. But what it's a testimony of is these people have learned that disobedience is disaster for humanity. And that's what, as your pastor, I want to teach you this morning. Disobedience will always lead to disaster. And they had learned that from their parents' generation. And they said, not now, not today. Obedience equals opportunity. And so we're not going to go and pursue disaster. We're going to pursue opportunity. But it's going to cost us. But obedience hurts. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us vulnerable. Think about this. You're amidst the nation of pagan countries around you and pagan cities around you. And and by this decision to circumcise 1.5 million men, you have lost your standing army. So this act of circumcision, why? Because they're rendered useless, at least for a matter of a couple of weeks, where they are not able to defend themselves in case of attack. And so this circumcision says, God, will do what's costly. God will do at times what is painful. God, we will render ourselves vulnerable for you because we, by faith, are going to believe that obedience creates a better day than disobedience does. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who wish they would have learned that truth that obedience is the way to go when they're sitting and their lives are crumbling apart because of disobedience. They've learned and they've said, we're going to live out God's commands. They have the Passover, which is a remembrance of how God has met them at the latter part of chapter 5, and we learn that God is with them at the very end of chapter 5. And we come to the city of Jericho. So they've healed up from the circumcision. And God says, all right, I told your forefathers I was going to give you this land. You're the generation that's going to. You've done the hard thing. You've obeyed me when it doesn't make sense. You've obeyed me when it's going to cost you. You've obeyed me even though that makes you vulnerable. Now here's what I want you to do. See that city Jericho? It's a fortified city. It's got walls all around it. We are told that the city of Jericho, another passage of Scripture, was a mighty city, a city with mighty fortifications that would keep it, uh, make it impregnable uh, from an invading army. And they see it. And their first battle is going to be a hard one. It isn't going to be easy. And, and this comes to now listening to exactly what God says. This is what obedience is. And so they are told in chapter 6... Here's what I want you to do, and you can follow along in your Bible there and can read that later as well, but here's what he says. I want you for seven days to walk around the city. Now, for the first six days, I want you to walk around the city once, and then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. And at the end of that, I want you to yell and scream. I want your trumpeters to blow the horns And the walls are going to come tumbling down. Yeah, right, God. No, that's not how it works. Where have we ever seen a city's walls come tumbling down because people walked around it? But notice what they do. They do exactly that. Again, in, in all the chapters preceding this, we see grumbling and complaining and outright rejection. They have said, listen, this makes no sense to me but I'm going to do it. 
this might get me made fun of. Got to imagine the people of Jericho are starting to mock them, especially day two and three, nothing happens. They got to start saying, you know what, these guys are a lot of bark, no bites. And they begin to hurl insults. At least that's what the Veggie Tales video reminds us of. Remember the little Jericho peas? They're in there mocking the people of Jericho. They're throwing goo down on them and all of that. And that's legit because everything we learn from Veggie Tales is from the Bible. So, right? And so, no doubt, there's a level of mocking and scorn that's taking place. And what we learn is their obedience. Now, now this is the important thing. Moses, the great leader he was, could not get the previous generation to line up single file for a drinking fountain break. They would rebel against him. But this generation, they stand up and they're ready to be circumcised, they're ready to reinstitute the Passover, and they're ready to go walk around a city, no questions asked, they're willing to follow God. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, they chose to choose, they chose God and obedience over themselves and disobedience. And that's a decision you and I need to make. And until we do, we will live under a curse called sin. And we got to stop living that way. And we got to stop living in the failures of the past and choose today whom we're going to serve. Now, this gets played out a little more. And it involves not only uh, committing to obedience, but carrying out God's commands. It's one thing to hear what God is saying. It's another to do it. The easiest part of obedience you're doing right now. You're listening. But the question is, and as I pray, the hardest part of the sermon is the application of the sermon. Can I tell you something? I tell you all the time. These things are easy to preach, hard to live. And they're hard to live for your pastor, and I know they're hard to live for you. And so here's this group of people, and they're commanded to walk around this city and do it for seven days, and on the seventh day, do it seven times, and they're going to do it while a watching world mocks and scorns them. How would they do it? What made them different? Well, notice that carrying out God's commands, write that down, number two, carrying out God's commands, first of all, involves pliability. It involves pliability. Now, that's a, bad, a, a big word that just means being flexible. It's being flexible, moldable, shapeable. And they have come to this realization that being rigid towards God gets you nowhere. Having an agenda of your own when talking with God isn't helpful. And so they have said, God... A new gen- as a new generation, we are going to place ourselves in your hands, and even if you ask us to do difficult things, painful things like circumcision, we'll do it. Even if it means that we've got to walk around a city and look dumb for a while, we'll do it, fully trusting that you will take our flexibility, you'll take our pliability, and you'll use it for your good. One person has said, uh, faith is trusting God in the hard things, knowing good will result from it. And that's exactly what the people before the the city of Jericho are doing. They're trusting God in the hard things, knowing God has promised a good result to come after it. And so that's what they're doing. God says this is how we're going to destroy the city. I don't know how it's going to happen. I've never seen it happen this way. 
but I'm going to trust that it is. And so they were pliable. They were moldable. God says numerous times in his scripture that the best way to understand our relationship with him is that he is the potter and we are the clay. And so here we are on the wheel of God's pottery disc, if you will, and I don't know what the titles of all these things are, and he's shaping us and he's molding us. But the problem is, is when the pottery becomes hard and brittle, it's unusable, it's unmoldable, and it's literally thrown off to the side. Some of us have been pushed off to the side because we're not moldable. God can't use us. God can't shape us the way He wants to, and so He's rendered us in some ways useless or unfit for use. And what we need to do is we need to come back and we need to ask God for forgiveness and say, I've been rigid with you, God. I've been inflexible with you, God. And here I am. I want to serve you. I want to be the clay that is molded by the great master of the universe. I want to be molded by God. And when you do that, God, the great artisan that he is, will fashion something beautiful with your life. And that's what he's doing with these people. It involves pliability. Notice it involves perseverance. When you carry out the commands of God, it will involve perseverance. Seven days. Seven days a week. It's a lot of time. And each of the weeks, they're going to get up, and they're going to go to Jericho from their camp, and they're going to walk around Jericho, which would have been no small task with such a large amount of people, and then they're going to go back home. And they're going to sleep and eat, and they're going to get up, and they're going to do it again. And they'll go home, they'll get up again, do it again. And seven days, they're going to do this. i got to imagine, humanly speaking, that somewhere amidst those seven days, some people probably said, this isn't worth it. What are we doing? We're getting mocked, we're getting laughed at, we're, you know, our, our name is probably being drugged through the mud. This, this isn't worth it. Now, we don't see that, which just shows an awesome faith on their part. But I know for me, I have been called and you have been called to walk around this world obeying the commands of God while a watching world mocks us, while a watching world scorns us, while a a watching world um, thinks that we're imbeciles in the process. And God calls us, and the whole reason for this book and this chapter is that Christians will live lives of perseverance. Why? Why? Because God's got a work going on, and it's taking some time to bring it to fruition, and we're wondering, when are the walls of this world going to come down? And they will in God's good time, but until then, we need to remain steadfast and true, because here's the thing. Just as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, so one day God will bring this world under judgment. And on that great and glorious day, we will be vindicated for all that we've done. All the time, all the energy, all of the mocking and slander that we've received from people, we will be vindicated as individuals who were found faithful, who were wise to listen to God and not ourselves. But we've got to persevere. Finally, it's perseverance and persistence. And notice thirdly, uh, that is really important, it's a process. God could have dropped the walls of Jericho in an instant. But he didn't. Why not? 
Because God recognizes for us to learn, we have to learn through a process. Faith does not happen overnight. Faith living is not done after one sermon. But it takes perseverance and persistence, and it's a process. And what happens is is we grow and we grow, and we take a couple steps back, and then we grow some more, and we go back a step, and we grow more. The life of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, doesn't happen in one day. It happens over a course of time. And we're going to see that this life of faith that they're going to live isn't going to end at the victory of Jericho. Because once they get done with the battle of Jericho, something's going to happen where someone's going to disobey. His name is Achan. He's going to disobey God's commands of what can be taken, what can be plundered from Jericho. And they go to the next battle, the battle of Ai. And when they get there, they lose the battle because there's sin in the camp. And that is the life that we live, where we have one victory, and then the next time we think victory is going to happen again, and we have a defeat. But then victory happens again and again, and sometimes it's a process. And we need to recognize that this life of faithfulness isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. But what does it produce? When we obey God, when we choose faithfulness in the present, instead of the faithfulness faithlessness of the past, lives are changed. The first life that's changed is the life of the people who are living it, the Israelites. They see the walls come tumbling down, and they find out that obeying God brings the plan of God into fruition, and they're thankful for it, and they rejoice, and there's great celebration. We've obeyed God, and God has come through. That is a marvelous thing for us to see in this life. When we obey God, God allows us to be victorious. We need to rejoice in that. We need to praise God for that. But there's the changing of another life. This brings up verse 31 of Hebrews, where we're told, by faith this woman, a prostitute named Rahab from Jericho, is delivered from the destruction of Jericho, and she is brought into the nation of Israel. And we learn a couple things about this. We are told, in fact, in uh, Joshua chapter 2, turn to Joshua chapter 2 for a moment. I'm sorry, not Joshua chapter 2, it's Joshua chapter 5, sorry, or 6, 6, I'm all messed up. Joshua chapter 6, sorry. So the walls are about to come down, the children of Israel are marching around the city, but what happens to Rahab? But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. When they burned the city with fire and everything in it, Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she had hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So here, one person or one family is saved. Rahab and her family. What allowed them to be saved? Notice a couple things. It is the faithfulness of the children of Israel that saves, by God's grace and His mercy, Rahab and her family. How does this begin? Number one, our faithfulness sparks the interest of non-believers. 
So we learn in in Joshua chapter 2, that's where I was going a moment ago, in Joshua chapter 2, that Rahab has heard of the renown of the God of Israel and the people of Israel. She says in Joshua chapter 2, I've heard how you cross the Red Sea on dry land. Our gods can't do that. Our king can't do that. Our people can't do that. And so I'm going to trust your God, not my gods. I'm going to trust your ways, not my ways. So I'll help you out. I'll hide you from the authorities so they don't know you're here spying out the city. But what I ask for in return is that that same God who have served you all throughout this time would become my God and that I might be able to serve him, that I might be able to be protected by him. I want you to know today that you have a watching world around you. Your neighbors are watching, your family is watching, your friends are watching, and even your acquaintances are watching. And if they know you for any amount of time, they know you carry the banner of Christianity over you, that you hold uh, tightly uh, the claims of Christ and that you live according to his word. And they're watching that. I have family members, I have friends, I have coworkers who are watching, and you know what they're saying? I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Why does he do this? Why is he involved in the things he is? Why does he invest so much time and energy in this Christianity thing? And they're watching and they're wondering. And and every once in a while they'll ask, why do you do all this? I was asked yesterday by a a woman at a catering event that I was catering. She says, "I, I, I found out that you're a pastor. Aren't you busy enough catering? Why would you do that? And I'm like, uh huh. You know, I was going to talk about you, lady, in the, in the service tomorrow. Because you've looked at my life, and it doesn't make any sense. And, and when things don't make sense, we as people ask questions. And now I have an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that I have and the reason why I get up and preach every Sunday and do all that I do is because I love Jesus. And she got way more of an answer than she was looking for. But that's what we need to be doing. We need to be showing people a life of obedience that sparks the interest of others. Rahab says, listen, I've heard about your God. I've seen your faithfulness, and I want to know more. Now, the, the spies don't stop there. The spies say, okay, you can have life. You can have protection. You can have a new lease in your life. If you'll do the following, and the scripture tells us in Joshua chapter 5 and in Joshua chapter 2, on two different occasions, they tell her, hey, out of your window, throw a uh, scarlet thread, let us know where you live, show that to God, and if you will do that, we're going to protect you, our God is going to protect you when the walls of the city come tumbling down, and that's exactly what happens. Everybody who was in Rahab's home at the time of God's judgment were saved, And so here the spies not only exhibit, which we do, I think, a really, really good job. We exhibit a godly life. We exhibit a life of holiness and a life of faith. The problem is, is we never tell people what that means for them. And so the spies say, listen, yes, we're glad you've seen the acclaim of our God. We're glad you've seen our obedience. But here's a way you can experience it for yourself. And they share what seemingly is the gospel That without God, we're lost. And that uh, a crimson thread, which is a foreshadowing of what Christ does on the cross, is the way of salvation. And God, in this new, if you will, Passover, passes over his judgment over the house of Rahab because by faith 
she believed. And she was brought into the family of God. And she was brought in, and the text says, and she for the rest of her life was a part of the people of God. And that's what happens when we introduce people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We bring them into a new family where they are never the same again. Now I need to close, but let me add one more element to it. In our obedience and in our faithfulness, we always are worried about what it does for us. What it does for us in the here and now. But I want you to know when we obey, it allows us to see the plans of God unfold. Let me close with this. Turn your Bibles for just one moment to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And we'll be done here in just a moment. But in Matthew chapter 1, I want to show you one word in the entire text. Matthew chapter 1, if you don't know, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so there's a litany of names that is written that shows Jesus and his lineage back all the way from Abraham to Joseph and Mary. And in verse 5 of that genealogy, there's a name. And it says the following, And Salmon, the uh, father of Boaz, by, help me out. Let's say it like we mean it. Rahab. Wait a minute, she's an outsider. Wait a minute, she's a prostitute. Wait a minute, she shouldn't have been a part of this equation. I want you to know that when we obey God, God takes that obedience and he does things maybe in this life or in generations to come. He does masterful work. Notice who Rahab's son is. He's a known man, Boaz. And Boaz is going to be a central figure in one of the next books of the Bible, Ruth. And God is going to use Boaz as a picture of our kinsman redeemer, the one who takes us in, the one who loves on us even though we're unlovable. And God is going to use the posterity of Rahab because of her faith. She would be used to not only be a channel of God's grace to her generation, but for many generations to come. Let me tell you this in closing. That is not possible if today you choose disobedience. And so today, you and I have to choose. Will we choose the curse? Will we choose to continue to live in the failures of our past, which will become failures in our present and failures in our future? Or today will be a day that we draw a line and say, God, it's a new day, it's a new opportunity, and I choose obedience Because you have promised you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And you promise success and not failure in this world if I will only trust you and follow your commands and obey you every step of the way. Brothers and sisters, a choice is before you. How will you choose?